Consider this evening the second commandment, the requirements and the blessings of keeping the second commandment of God. We read from Deuteronomy for this, in chapter 5. We read this every morning, this law of God, but here we consider in detail the requirements, blessings, and cursings that are accompanied with the promulgation of this second commandment of God. The first commandment we know is, you shall have no other gods before me. The second commandment is as follows, verses 8 through 10, Deuteronomy chapter 5, the word of God. You shall not make for yourself a carved image, any likeness of anything that is in heaven above, or that is in the earth beneath, or that is in the water under the earth. You shall not bow down to them, nor serve them. For I, the Lord your God, am a jealous God, visiting the iniquity of the fathers upon the children to the third and fourth generations of those who hate me, but showing mercy to thousands, to those who love me and keep my commandments. As far we read the second commandment, which will be part of our text, which will also include Hebrews chapter 1, and we'll refer to that later, but The second commandment is right in front of us here, as we would hear preached to us what God requires in this great and wonderful commandment of his. In the first commandment, we have considered that God would have us to have no other gods. We should have God. And so we are kept from idolatry in that first commandment and warned against it. The second commandment concerns how we are to worship God. So if the first commandment is who God is and reveals that, the second commandment reveals how God is to be worshipped and how he is to be worshipped correctly. The Heidelberg Catechism, in its explanation of the second commandment, picks up on this central idea of the second commandment in distinction from the first When it asks and answers the question, what does God require in the second commandment? The answer is that we in no wise represent God by images, and then this, nor worship him in any other way than he's commanded in his word. And then the question is considered, the questions about images, are they not at all to be made? The answer is no, God neither can nor can nor may be represented by any means. But as to creatures, though they may be represented, yet God forbids to make or have any resemblance of them, either in order to worship them or to serve God by them. Then the question was asked at the time of the Reformation, may not images be tolerated in the churches as books to the laity? Maybe a picture of Mary or a crucifix of Jesus on the wall, his hanging there, May we not use these and be, uh, be edified by them as books to the laity? Maybe we can't read. Maybe we can learn something from these icons and statues. Here's the answer of the Reformation. May images not be tolerated in the church as books to the laity? No. For we must not pretend to be wiser than God, who will have his people taught, not by dumb images, but by the lively preaching of his word. So the subject is worship. Have no other gods before me. That's who God is and why we should, we should not have any other gods besides God. 
The second commandment, don't make graven images. Don't bow to them. Seek to serve God by them. That refers to the how of worship, how to worship God correctly. We consider, therefore, something that is of vital importance to us. No small thing is the worship of the saints. In fact, it's the greatest thing. What does the church do on earth? It worships. What will the people of God be doing in heaven? Worshiping God. Why have we been born again by the Spirit of Christ? That we might be formed and reformed and conformed to the image of God himself to worship and show forth the praise of God. We are in the king's business of worship and praise. And here's the commandment of worship, which is presented negatively in the Ten Commandments. Do not have graven images. And positively in the rest of the Bible, it speaks of how we should be worshipped. Worship is so important that besides the doctrines of grace, the recovery of the scriptures, it was the central uh, issue of the Reformation of the 1500s. The need for a return to worship, worship that had been uh, contaminated by the smells and bells and icons and statues and genuflections and venerations of the saints throughout the Roman Catholic false church. The worship must be restored, the reformers knew, and they knew this precisely as they rediscovered the truth hidden in the Bible in foreign languages, not allowed to be translated in the vernacular, but now revealed to many, and so the people were glad. We understand worship now. We get to worship God as he has taught us in the Bible. This is the wonderful freedom and privilege and blessing of the people of God. That's why it's important to hear carefully what God would say to us tonight through the second commandment and the preaching of it. But secondly, there are so many different opinions about worship. Also in the Reformed and Presbyterian community, worship has been used ever since the great uh, megachurch movement of the 80s and the 90s as a some kind of user-friendly vehicle to get people who are wandering and who are wondering and who are seekers. And so there's seeker-sensitive worship that has taken over the holy biblical worship that is the simple and godly uh, uh, revelation in the Bible. There is, as well, much confusion about a thousand of the different elements and adiaphora or uh, uh, things that are circumstances of the worship that concern the people of God and that have confused the worship of God. We will not get into them all, but that we might be clear on basic principles and practices of worship. May God bless us tonight in the preaching. And that is the third reason why we would consider this second commandment and very attentively. It's because there's blessing attached to it. This is the commandment of blessing. Blessing upon those in the generations who love God and keep his commandments, also the second commandment, and have no graven images. But cursing upon those and their children 
And we see this in the churches today to the third and fourth generation of those who refuse to worship God the way he has commanded. So there's blessing and there's cursing. Aren't you glad to be in a church that takes seriously God and his worship? May God make you glad and me glad and freely come to his house, worshiping him in spirit and in truth, no images, but by the image called Jesus Christ, the wonderful Son of God, the express image of God's own glory. Want to consider then man's um, imaginative worship? That's the word I'm going to use here. It might be a little uh, difficult for people to get around this because imaginative speaks of mythological, speaks of zaniness and the people imagining a vain thing, but let's not... Let the term be hijacked from us because it's so abused. There's an imagination that's good, and it's born of the Holy Spirit. So imaginative, which would be biblical and holy worship, but lively, that of man and that of God. I want to contrast the two. Secondly, the church's worship and the image bearer's worship, your worship and mine. And then finally, the blessing and the cursing. Well, God prohibits here carved images, likenesses of anything in heaven, any creature that you can find in the stars, the sun, moon, and so on, anything on the earth, anything under the earth, whatever that might be, any creature. He prohibits people from making representations of him so that somehow they might worship either the creature or pretend to worship God by the means of that creature. This is what the pagans of old did. They'd worship their, um, whatever they thought was the source of life behind the sun. There's got to be some power behind that powerful orb, which when it shines burns us and we have to hide from, but also which gives us life. So they made Medallions of the sun. Ra was the sun god of the Egyptians, which God showed was no god in his ninth plague, the darkness on the earth. And so they thought there was a force behind this to be reckoned with and that would bless them if they bowed to this idol, this medallion, this statue of wood or stone or metal. And so that's idolatry. And so for life, from the crops, Baal was worshipped among the Canaanites, represented by some gross figurine, and they'd set up Baal, objects of Baal. There was a male and a female. And so together, the male and female God would give fertility as when you worshipped and sacrificed to them, and they would give you a blessing upon your crops. And as many things that concerned the people, they'd have their gods. They'd have pantheons of gods, the god of war, and then the Greeks, and a god of peace, and the god of love, Aphrodite, and all of these things. And so this is the idea. But this is all prohibited in the second commandment. And the reason is simply because of God. God is God. And God is so much God that he's not the creation that he's made wonder of creation is that he made something out of nothing. Nothing was there with God except God in all eternity, and yet God 
breathed into the nothingness and there was creation. But the amazing thing about it was not only the creative act, but that God kept distinct from the creation that he made. The philosophers of old have thought that God was like the creation he made. He kind of spilled his being into the creation. And there's a little bit of God here and a little bit of God there and a little bit of God in you. That's the New Age movement. Everyone's God. I am God. And I can call the shots and so on. But that's not the biblical God. He made ex nihilo out of nothing all things, and he himself remains not all things, but God above the things. So God delineates what the Israelites would meet in Canaan, in which they knew about in Egypt, the gods of heaven, stars and moon and whatever, shooting stars, sun, of earth that you can see, and under the earth, and maybe devils. And he says that as they're about to take the promised land, and he warns them, don't, don't be taken in by these. I am God. And you think of it, how God is God. These are what the commandments reveal, how God is God. How wonderfully true is it is that the Bible reveals God who's above, and God who's transcendent, God who's the holy other, as a theologian has said. He's holy God, and not the creation that he's made. And so don't think that you can get to God and somehow have contact with God through this thing. It will never, never suffice. In fact, if you look at the Bible at Deuteronomy chapter 4 and verse 15 and following, here's the danger of making, of making icons or statues or images of God. Take careful heed, Deuteronomy 4.15. Take careful heed to yourselves, for you saw no form when God the Lord spoke to you at Horeb out of the midst of the fire, lest you act corruptly and make for yourself a carved image in the form of any figure, the likeness of male or female, the likeness of any animal that's on the earth, or the likeness of any winged bird that flies in the air, the likeness of anything that creeps on the ground, or the likeness of any fish that's in the water beneath the earth, and take heed lest you lift up your eyes to heaven. And when you see the sun, the moon, and the stars, all the hosts of heaven, you feel driven to worship them and serve them, which the Lord your God has given to all the peoples under the whole heaven as a heritage. Don't do that. Don't do that. Don't take the creatures and think that they are worthy of worship and that God can somehow be worshipped by them. It'll always bring God down, if we could say that reverently. The people will always have a distorted view of God if they think he has wings, if they, if they think he is just like the sun and anything else that they have made. Now, it's striking. The Bible does speak to us, uh, sometimes metaphorically, I don't believe the whole Bible is a metaphor, as some people would say. But there are metaphors, figures of speech in the Bible. And that simply is God comparing himself to a hen, a mother hen. He covers us with his wings like a mother hen. Or to a mountain, or to a rock, or to the, the good shepherd. God is comparing himself to things so that we can understand them. He's speaking down to us and sometimes he even says he has hands and feet, and we know he doesn't. He is God. But God, you say, can do that. He can tell us what he's like in his words because he's God. But we can't take the things themselves and think to come to God by them 
and think that God is pleased when we make them as representatives of God. No, God says, no, that's too far. Consider the metaphors. Consider what I say to you. I am God the Father, which is not a metaphor. He's the original Father. But in a way, we get a pattern of fatherhood in our own dads and so on. Consider all of that. That's not dangerous, but lovely. That's light. But do not dare to think that that dad is God or a way to God himself. And that sun in the heavens is a way to bow down to, to get to God who's behind the sun. Don't do that. That's too far. Don't do that. Then you're saying that we can come to God however we want and that God really is not so much the God, he says, the God who's holy other. Let's see, again, people who are made to be religious, Adam and Eve, made to be religious, they want some kind of contact with God. People are clueless, hard, uh, really, about God, but they know enough that there is a God, but they just don't know how to get to God. That's the problem with humanity, the problem, the consequence of the fall. People in this fallen state are not just creatures, but they are sinful. And God has withdrawn himself, as it were. He's holding this whole human race under in wrath as the people of of Adam, the fallen ones, they continue to rebel against God. God will not have it. I am God and there is no other, Isaiah the prophet says. And in these Ten Commandments, he's saying, I am God, there's no other, and there's no other way to worship me than than the way I have prescribed. What do people do? They have other gods, and they think they can get to God in other ways than God has prescribed. It's all vain. It really is. And it's ever since the fall. The fall of Adam into sin was God or Adam and Eve choosing to listen to themselves and their own intuition. And when they fell, they defaced the image of God. It's all but lost. If you can say in any sense of the word that human beings still have the image of God, it's just a vestige. It's just the outer form. It's lacking the heart of the image, knowledge, righteousness, and holiness. And so man is self-made now. That's what Adam and Eve chose to be, self-made. God made them, and and Eve said, no, no, no. I, I rather like the fact that I can be as gods. That's the devil's temptation. I do not like the fact, because the devil really has persuaded me, though she wasn't saying this, she wouldn't probably have admitted this, I do not like the fact that God tells me what to do. And so sin is man making himself in his own image. He's a self-made man. That's what sinners do. They make themselves. They remake themselves. That's why people all over the place and at every age are trying to remake themselves. Maybe die divorcing their wife of 20 years or 40 years because they have the 20 or the 40-year itch. Maybe by changing their gender. They just don't know who they are. And they don't really want to know who they are originally, created in the image of God to serve God. And so they make themselves. Not far behind that being self-made is they're trying to make God in their own image. And that's what image worship is at its heart. 
remaking God in our own image. We're the way to God in our own image. It's so connected are the first and the second commandments, God and how to get to God. But this is what people do. A great man has said of the great sin of mankind, our minds are idol workshops, I-D-O-L. We make idols all the time. It's a factory, our mind. We imagine God being the God who lives to please us. You ever imagine that, God? I deserve a break today. We imagine God who changes and who accepts us just the way we are. We imagine that God makes us a homosexual. Imagine that. And so, at the heart of this commandment is the prohibition for self-made men to make themselves gods, to worship whatever idol they want or even God by. The history of this world is of paganism, but even in the religious sections of the world, for example, Judah and so on, man is worshiping man. His imaginations are vain, they're empty. And the world was destroyed because every imagination of the thoughts of his heart was only evil continually, and God had had it. And so all the world but eight were destroyed. And at the center of this was this idea that we can just be who we are, and it doesn't matter God's promise to separate the seeds of the woman and the snake. It doesn't matter that we live righteously even in the generations, and so the religious seed was all but gone, and the promises of God seemingly were threatened because of this imaginary worship, these imaginary people, these imaginative vain ones who rebelled against the ordinances of God, and this is a picture of what it's like today. And even in the church, people imagine a vain thing, worship. They come to God, maybe in the name of Jesus, but they've invented a Jesus who's not really Jesus. They've made an idol out of Jesus, who is the son of the living God. It's terrible. So you worship God, and you find even in the largest church in the world, you know what that is? Roman Catholic Church, they don't have a second commandment. You realize that? They've gotten rid of the part, either in their catechisms entirely, they've omitted the part about not having uh, graven images, because they have them all over the place. They have to get rid of the commandment that indicts them and brings them to the bar of God and says guilty. So instead of the second commandment, they have really just one, don't make, have any other gods, But then they have ten. They end up with ten by dividing the tenth, thou shalt not covet, into two. So you shall not covet your neighbor's wife. That's one. And then everything else about your neighbor, that's the tenth commandment. Something like that. So they have neatly eliminated that which gives them a guilty conscience if they had one, the second commandment. Well, Protestants are doing the same thing, more on that presently, but... God has given one way to worship him. Wonderful, wonderful, Jesus. For that, we would turn now to Hebrews chapter 1. And you may follow along in my reading, or you can read with me your own Bible. You Protestant 
uh, prophets, priests, and kings, you. But Hebrews chapter 1 is where we understand what the positive uh, aspect of the, the second commandment is all about. Chapter 1, verses 1 through 4. God, who at various times and various ways spoke in time past to the fathers by the prophets, has in these last days spoken to us by his Son, whom he has appointed heir of all things, through whom also he made the worlds, who being this, the brightness of his glory, the express image of his person, and upholding all things by the word of his power, when he had by himself purged our sins, sat down at the right hand of the majesty on high, having become so much better than the angels, he has by inheritance obtained a more excellent name than they. That to which I draw your attention is the description of Jesus, the brightness of the glory of God, the express image of his person or substance. Now, this is the image Jesus Christ, whom God has given to us to worship God by. He's the one by whom we can approach unto God. And Hebrews would say that later on in chapter 10. We can approach unto God by the new and living way, even the blood of Jesus Christ. He's the way to God. He's the image of God. And what is being described here in two figures of speech is the fact that Jesus Christ is very God in the flesh. He's the brightness of the glory of God. Speaks of Jesus being like the ray of the sunshine. And even as you cannot separate the ray of the sun from the sun itself, so Jesus, the ray of the sun, is God himself in his glory revealed. And so he's described as the express image of his person. There's a reference to a stamp that would be stamped, say, on a piece of wax, and it would have things written on it, children. Could be the stamp of Caesar himself, or could be pluribus unum, or whatever else is stamped on there, and it's stamped into some wax, so you know that that wax represents exactly what the stamp itself is, has on it. So Jesus Christ himself is said to be that which the stamp has given to him in his own human identity. He's God. God has stamped his identity in the Son. So he's exactly who God is. That's why he can say to one of the disciples, if you see me, you've seen the Father. And John would say in chapter 1, when we behold Jesus, we behold his glory. And to behold the glory of, of someone who is called the Son of God is to behold simply God. God in his greatness. And what I'm saying by this is that God has given one, spoken one into this world by whom we can come to God because he is God with us. This is the answer to all the philosophical questions. How can there be God, one, and many, many? How can there be a contact with his principle, we know him as the triune God, and all that is below, all ideas, all persons, all humanity, how can there be? Well, Jesus Christ is the Christian answer. God with us, very God, expressly God, brightness of the glory. If you've seen him, you've beheld God, and coming to him, you come to God. That's what the second commandment is teaching. 
No graven images. Because let me tell you, God gives one image. His son. No graven. Don't look here and there and up there and everywhere. But look to God, who in his mercy, even in the Old Testament, was promising his son. You note that Hebrews reminds us of this, that in the Old Testament, God was giving his son. He was not making worship impossible. Because, Hebrews uh, starts out, God at various times and various ways spoke in time past to the fathers by the prophets and hath in these last days spoken to us by his son. But the fact that they're linking how God spoke with how he speaks today and contrasting them, but nevertheless telling us that God was speaking in different ways in those times and now in a better way now reminds us that God was still speaking. And as we heard this morning, God's speaking is God speaking Jesus. God in types and shadows and and in the reflections of his glory, in the Shekinah, in the temple, in the Ark of the Covenant, in the high priest, in David, in the prophet Isaiah or Jeremiah, he was saying, I am God, worship me by my son and in light of my word and by faith. And now we have it so much better, clearer. The great image is in flesh, revealed in the Bible. And we know this by the Holy Spirit testifying in our hearts and giving us faith and reworking in us to be image bearers of God, who love the image of the only begotten Son. That leads to this second point. The way out of idolatry is the way of God himself coming into our flesh, revealing himself in the image of Jesus. That really is the way out. The church has always recognized that. The church that focuses on Jesus Christ, preaching the gospel in him, will be kept in the true worship of God, always. The church that departs from Christ will leave the true worship of God. And it's amazing. This really is an amazing revelation here, in the second commandment brought out by a gospel preacher in the light of the new, that God could be with us in Jesus and still be God. And that when we see Jesus walking among men and being a man and having no form that we should desire him and needing sleep and showing all the weaknesses of human flesh except for sin, we can ponder that and say, how can it be? How can it be that Jesus is not just of the earth after all? He's so human. He was this baby. He was this one who had to grow. He is this one who had to learn obedience by the things that he suffered. He was this one who was tempted just like as we. How can it be? And see, this is all the miracle of the word of God. The miracle of it. Have no graven images. Don't try to find contact your way between you and me. As if you could earn something, be so creative, and I'm going to honor your creativity. 
even though in your creativity you've reinvented yourself and God too. Don't do that. Here's my son. And you think, and people, scoffers, will say this all the time, boy, we could have done it better. We could have had God come into the, in, in our conception, and this is their imagination, we could have God come down and what a great God, and he could bowl over all the enemies and show no weakness. But God said, no. He's going to be like people. And he's going to come, and it's not, it's not just to show off the glory of God in some abstract way, but it's to save a people to be God's people. So right here, after the identification of Jesus as the express image of God, the brightness of his glory, it reminds us that he's come to purge us from our sins. And he's risen to the right hand of God and has all authority and power to continue to apply the salvation that he's accomplished on Calvary. So worshiping God, the church recognizes that she worships God and would have Jesus as that one image by whom to worship God. And this is all for her salvation. Jesus. And the Bible. The Bible. Want to know what the church's worship of God, and not having graven images, but having Christ is all about? It's about being biblical. Very, very important. We're biblical. The elements of our worship every Sunday, drawn from the Bible. This is the word that God has given to teach us about avoiding image worship. Wherever there's people who have fallen into image worship, they've reinvented God or themselves or what church ought to be, it's because they've left the Bible. And many... Many a church that says it's a spirit-filled organization is not spirit, Holy Spirit-filled because they've left the Word of God. And the Holy Spirit, if he's the Holy Spirit, testifies of the truth of the Holy Word, and he leads us to the Word that's written and in which is everything necessary for doctrine, correction, rebuke, instruction, and righteousness that the man of God may be thoroughly furnished unto every good work That's the Bible. We're a people of the book. God says we ought to be. This is the thing that I give you, the great miracle of the inspired scriptures, and you can trust this. You can trust that you'll be led up to heaven and not just into the book, but up to heaven by the Holy Spirit within you, the same Spirit that inspired the Word in you, working life. By the Bible. In the Reformed camp, we've spoken of the regulative principle of worship. That's a principle we find in the Bible that guards us and guides us against aberrations. And the Catechism brings out this regulative principle, so-called, when it says that the second commandment requires that we worship God not in any other way than he's commanded in his word. That's the regulative 
principle. And it tells us that we are limited in how we ought to worship God and what is the best way by what the Word of God says, specifically by what it commands. And if it's not commanded, we may not do it. Now, this is in distinction from the Lutheran principle of worship, which says that if it's not forbidden, we can do it. We have the liberty to do it. You see the difference? The Reformed is tighter on this. If it's not commanded, don't try to invent something that God has not said is, is commanded. Lutherans would say, if it's not forbidden, you can do it. We say, if it's not commanded, we may not do it. My beloved, there's differences about that worship. I would uh, argue that a, a, maybe a better term would be uh, an SPW, not just a regulative principle of worship, but a spiritual principle of worship. To avoid the overtone, maybe, of legalism. And that's always what people fall into. Either legalism, we make rules where God does not, or license, and we just go zany. Now, beloved, we need to know in the Bible, and from the Word of God, Old and New Testament, that it's not a choice between Leviticus and maybe strict Old Testament law and wildness, which is not found anywhere. It's not a choice of being spiritual, and that means by the book, literally, Old Testament, follow the pattern there, and a choice between that and let go and let God. But the Bible does contain principles, and it does contain uh, practices that are very, very edifying for us. We need to know them, and we, in fact, as we're speaking, are engaging and living out of and worshiping out of those principles. The first one is that we are as a church. We worship as a church. Now, this is here speaking to the fact of our public worship. There's image bearers we worship all the time. But as a church, principles and practices of worship from the Bible. The church is so important in worship. Not just gatherings of two and three without the elders, for example. That's individual and family. That's fine. But we're speaking of what God has required the church to be doing, the pillar and ground of truth. The church is important. Elders are given. They watch for your souls as they must give account. They call for worship. In Hebrews 10, we're called in verse 25, not to neglect the assembling of ourselves together as the matter of some is. And so much the more as you see the day approaching. Well, the elders call worship together. Different services, we call the worship. And this is where we together Hear the word of God officially declared by an ambassador called by the church and Christ through the church. And so, according to the Bible, it's about church. Zion in the Old Testament, Jerusalem, the officials there, New Testament, the church, and God's people and their officers there. And then there's the preaching of the gospel. This is what we're doing now. Explaining, teaching, exhorting, admonishing, encouraging from heaven the Word of God. Preaching is central, and you find this throughout the New Testament. Would anyone argue with that? That in a church service, called by the church and God through them, there ought to be preaching, and that ought to be the primary place. And 
A lot of the worship together uh, today of Protestantism is short on preaching and long on praise bands and long on other stuff, skits and so on. But preaching, words communicated from heaven to inform your minds so that you have to think and that you have to meditate, have to, you do, and so that you can formulate thoughts and say amen and be transformed by the renewing of your mind. Christianity is not a mindless, let go and let God religion, or as they say, leaving your mind at the door religion. It's a thinking man and woman's religion. I don't care how intelligent you have, you are, what your IQ is, but if you have the spirit, you want the spirit to lead you into the word of God. And faithfully and clearly, sometimes simply, sometimes a little more complex, explained off the pulpit. Then, of course, there's sacraments, means of grace, besides the preaching, baptism and the Holy Spirit, the Holy Supper. And then there's praying, of course, an integral part of our communion here. Then there's giving. Then there's singing and the communion of the saints. Some would add uh, the benediction is an integral part of worship. Maybe you can come up with other elements of worship that, that are so vital to worship. Not to say that all of these things need to be all the time in every worship service. We don't celebrate the sacraments every single Sunday, baptism or the supper. But Certainly, there's this regularity that will remind us that we are coming to God the way he wants us to. Now, this thing, this other thing about the way the church and believers are to worship. Beloved, it's about being God's image bearers. Believing when we worship. You can have all the elements of worship. And everything in place. And the preacher, and he's going a mile a minute, and whatever. And he's on fire of the Lord. But if there be not image bearers receiving the word and preaching it, lively preaching, as the catechism says, if there be not that life living out of who we are by grace, it's all for naught. And it's a bunch of hypocrisy and we have it all down to the P's and Q's and we, we, we say that the charismatics are, are crazy addicts and we say that the Roman Catholics have got it all wrong and here we are, reformed but lifeless. How terrible that would be. Worshiping God in the name of Jesus and extolling him is about being those image bearers. It's striking. How connected the second commandment seems to be even with the fact that God originally made Adam and Eve in the image of God. Because look, Deuteronomy 5, we read, you shall not make yourself a carved image any likeness of anything that is in heaven above or in the earth beneath and so on. Seems to be going back when it speaks of image and likeness to what Adam and Eve were made in, the image and likeness of God. Now, there is a lot of thinking to do there, but I want to commend to your attention that it's certainly teaching this. 
when we are coming to God as his people, as his image bears, don't think of anything else that you need to worship God than Jesus. And Jesus who's worked in you to believe something, in fact, God and things above. You see, what the renewing spirit does to us is he takes us from the whole realm of thinking we need to worship God by images, thinking we need to see something. To have some icon here, and maybe outlined here, and over there, or smell something. God has done something to you and to me. He's made us to be, well, from another planet. How about heaven? Worship takes us to heaven. If it takes us anywhere. And we have to think heavenly when we're thinking of God in Jesus revealed and of who he has made us to be. You can do this. They that worship God must worship him in spirit and in truth, Jesus says to the Samaritan woman. And she's scratching her head. How can I do that? We worship on Mount Gerizim and, and you worship in Jerusalem and I don't get it and I'm a sinner besides. Well, beloved, this word is for all of those who have trouble getting it. Here's who God is. It's God above all of the earth who's revealed in Jesus. But remember who you are. You're thinking about all the things you need to worship God and you need a degree maybe to preach and you need a degree to hear and you need some kind of spiritual degrees, fervor in your, in your religion to, be, to reignite you. Just remember who you are and how blessed you are to be in the image of likeness of God, of God and so that you can connect with God. He's your father. And for Jesus' sake, he's your father and you are now his. To worship, to believe, to be silent before and to be blessed by. The threat here of having images, and that would mean forgetting Jesus, or he's off to the side, and leaving off believing in our worship, the threat is cursing. God's a jealous God. I, the Lord, am a jealous God, visiting the iniquity of the fathers upon the children to the third and fourth generations of those who hate me. What a great threat. All because we've reinvented God in our own image. He's just like us. And he ought to be, because we know things better. And all because we don't understand what it is that God has visited this earth in Jesus. God is jealous, and especially in the realm of Christendom, church, Old Testament Jews, he is not happy when his bride, the church, goes after other lovers. That's what she's doing. He's jealous for her loyalty alone. And you can't say, well, I'm trying, oh God, and 
I can do it this way, can I? Of course, I have the right, don't I? You can't say that. Because he's revealed in his word how he's to be approached. And Jesus. Imagine, men, when your wife would say, if she found a picture of another woman in your pocket. Imagine that. And you gave the excuse and said, well, she looks just like you. And every time I think of that woman, I think of you. Imagine what she would say. And here we are making up things about God and having another picture of somebody else. God says, but I'm your lover. Put away the pictures. Put away the earthly conceptions of of God. Think greater thoughts of God than you've had. And you see how we can fall into this. Practically speaking, when we're down in the dumps and when we're sideways and upside down in our life and we can't get things together, well, some way or another it comes down to the fact we have another picture of God in our pocket or in our minds and the God revealed in the Bible. You don't think he's sufficient? His grace is sufficient to forgive? We think he's just not for us. Cursing in the generations. That's pretty brutal. (laughs) Some apostates say, yeah, if God wrote that commandment today, he left that out. That's not fair. can't visit the iniquity of the fathers upon the children. Beloved, what blasphemy. The Ten Commandments stand. The Second Commandment stands. And the threat of punishment stands, and we're seeing it in the religious world today. They say they have God and they worship God whatever way pleases them. And those who say salvation is of the Lord, say reform, say Presbyterian, they got those doctrines right, the doctrines of grace. And yet they've capitulated to the mass movement. We got to see something to know the success of the gospel. We got to see the numbers. We got to see the collection plate just swelling in all the money. We got to see how influential we can be just by tweaking things. A little song and dance, a statue, a little 7 Eleven songs. Seven words repeated 11 times, over and over. Don't try to compete, beloved. Gospel's about grace. And there's blessing. And we should know God is fair or just, visiting upon the heads of children the sins of the parents and you know how we can be just in that way because the children who follow the parents into one zany church after another, they themselves start to like it and they go after it. So they're, 
They're punished for their sins in the way of the parents taking one step toward one liberal church and then two steps toward another, and then pretty soon they're out the door of anything that has to do with the gospel. This is the world we live in. And so beware and warn people. Don't say, oh, you worship God that way, and that's exciting and so on. And Don't give them an inch. Luther would say to all those who say, I got the spirit, we got the spirit. They were rocking and rolling back then in the 1500s. You know that. Rock and rolls didn't birth with the Beatles. And Luther said, I smite that spirit on the snout. He saw it for what it is. We need to. And warn. By the grace of God, God will show mercy. Worship him. That is fun. It is. It's exhilarating. And it's good. And it's wholesome. And worship in the church. Worship in your home. Worship at work. Worship all over the place. Praise to God. Power in your life where there was nothing. Things not seen that are everything to you. Spiritual blessings in heavenly places in Christ Jesus by whom our sins are purged, express image of God. Ready to worship? Join me. Amen. We thank you, Lord, for the worship that we could render to you. We stammer in our speaking and we're feeble in our hearing. And our believing is, is weak and just limping along so, so much of, a, of the time. Lord, but you are mighty, you are strong, you are God above all gods, and you've given your son, and this was at great expense. Even the precious blood of Jesus spent on our account, and we pray now, Father, the rest of our life, every single minute to be worshipful, to be those who find opportunity where there was, we thought, closed doors, imaginative that way, living out of faith and seeing what is not seen and what God may be working in the nations and in our life and in our family and to reconcile us with those with whom we're estranged. Lord, we pray that we truly may then show off the creativity of God himself who thought it up in all eternity, to have this image, Jesus, in this world come to be the one by whom sinners can approach unto God and be saved and live and worship forever. Lord, bless this congregation. Bless us as we part ways presently, pastor and family on vacation, and, and we in our, in our ordinary life and also vacationing. God, bless us together. Keep us from sin and guide us back to one another. In Jesus' name, amen.